We've been talking about foundations. So if you're here today, it's your first time to visit this year, you're joining us for the last message of this series, and this is part seven, and, and we will finish with 10 key thoughts. But here's kind, of the, here's kind of the take, just so you know where we're coming from. Every family kind of have, has its own language or its own speak. Um, how many inside jokes are great if you're on the inside? But they're not so great if you're not in that groove with them, right? So families have tribal speak. They have inside jokes. All these things that have shaped us and touched us that kind of make us who we are. And we recognize that the church in general has that. Um, I even thought today when Pastor Josh was singing, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. If you have not been brought up in church culture at all, go with me. You've never been to church and you don't know that that statement is representative of Jesus, who was a perfect lamb that was sacrificed for us. You might be in here going, they worship sheep? I had no idea that they were sheep worshipers, right? Because we're singing worthy is the lamb. If you've never heard that before, you could be going, where, where are they coming with it? Now, I explain it. You're like, oh, I get it. There was a lamb that was sacrificed. It was a prophetic image that Jesus would be sacrificed. He is worthy, and I see why they call him that. He's the lamb, but oh, my goodness, he's also the lion. Because God's word says he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. In other words, he's the reigning king. So not only was he the lamb that was sacrificed, but he's for our forever king that we honor and we adore. A lot of tribal speak, right? We got to grow. We got to understand language. So one of the things that have happened over the years of Faith Chapel is God's impacted us in different ways, and then we try to align ourselves with what he's doing, and it creates, let's go ahead and shoot the first eight of them up here for him, John. We will, you guys will be like, you've summed this up so quickly. Why did it take seven weeks? I don't even understand. But I even mentioned this earlier when I said we're not performance driven. We're a church of his presence. As an under-shepherd here, as a as your lead pastor, but I recognize as a lead pastor, I'm just an under-shepherd of the Lord, I feel like my first responsibility is to help create an atmosphere for a church that would want to host the presence of God. If you're a first-time guest today, we, we, we already love you, and we're glad that you're here. Our church wants to help your family and help you become everything. And if you've been here for 19 years, we love you, and we're glad that you're here, and we want to help you grow... But more than we love any of us, we love him. And his presence means more to us than anything. And we really do believe, second point, that one moment in his presence changes everything. I, I could spend years and years dealing with an issue, but one touch from God can change everything in my life. Number three, that spiritual sensitivity is normal for believers. If you've ever heard somebody say, boy, I had a vision, and you're like, boy, I'd love to be that spiritual. Or, that person's so spiritual, they're so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. All these different phrases that pop up. You recognize that spiritual sensitivity is normal? Do you know that you're, you're not a physical being with a spirit, but you're a spiritual being with a physical house? You're going to live forever. Death is not an ending, folks. Death's a separation. 
When somebody passes from this life, that earthly body dies, but their spirit lives forever. And I want my spirit to live, my soul to live forever in the presence of the Almighty God. And I want to go ahead and practice that now. I want to host him now. Number four, signs and wonders leave us wondering about God. So many great stories, I won't even go into any of them. Number five, rivers of living water flow from our inner man. Pastor Brad, where would you get that crazy statement? This gentleman that I follow, his name is Jesus. And he said, if you'll follow me, if you'll drink what I have to offer from your own belly, from your inner man, rivers of living water, just like I'm bringing healing everywhere I go, you can do the same thing everywhere that you go. Number six, children do not receive a smaller Holy Spirit. Our kids might be smaller in stature, but they are not smaller in the power and the presence of God. God didn't give them something small. He gave them the spirit of the Almighty God, and they can walk forth with signs and wonders following their lives. Number seven, knowing our identity in Christ allows us to walk in God's best. And then lastly, number eight, we talked about this last week, our defeated enemy has an agenda. So since we just spent a little bit of time on this, I'll give you a couple of verses in review and then we'll dive into the last things that we have for this series. Everybody with me? That's pretty good, about half of us. That's better than normal, so thank you for that. Thank you. Um, if you don't get popular vote, you can still be the president. So, every, I, I, you know, it's all good. It's all good. So, Jesus utterly destroyed the work of the devil. Now, we have, a, we have an enemy, not going to deny it. I can see his handiwork, but he's a defeated foe. We learn in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, it says, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to do what? Destroy the devil's work. So why did Jesus come? He came to destroy the devil's work. Now, what's interesting to me is this Greek word for destroy is the word apolome. It means an utterly annihilate, completely devastate, pulverize, Leave something completely unrecognizable. Jesus came to do that, to destroy the work of the enemy, which kind of leads to the question, what was the work of the enemy? And you really need to go all the way back to the creation when the enemy tempted Adam and Eve and they yielded to that temptation. The enemy was after something. What did he want? Can I remind you that they were given all the authority to step forth into the earth and to subdue it for the glory of God. They were given authority. The enemy wanted the authority that they had been given. Perhaps that's why Jesus actually refers to our enemy, the devil, remember this, as, quote, the prince of the air. How many know that prince, that's, that refers to a position of authority that should come through the bloodline. If you're, you're the king or you're the queen, your children are the princes and the princesses. We understand that. Why would we refer to the enemy as the prince of the air? It's a position of authority because he had stolen away what had been entrusted to Adam and Eve. So Jesus came back to destroy that work and to reinstate our rightful position to make his glory and his name known throughout the earth, to take the authority of heaven and bring it to this planet. Leads to the second thought, not only did Jesus destroy the work of the enemy, but he, he also destroyed the enemy himself. Look in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. It says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. 
Jesus put on flesh. He defeated the enemy while he was in flesh. He rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and our enemies destroyed. Which leads to the question, then why does the earth look so miserable sometimes? Anybody else, you, you see a little chaos? Hatred, confusion, oppression, addiction, struggle, okay? There's a defeated enemy, but he has an agenda. And there's no way that the people in the world are going to walk free if the people in the church aren't walking in freedom. So let me just, as in transition, let me share a couple of verses with you, and then we'll get to the, this is all new stuff for you today, okay? Think about it. He is a deceiver, a tempter, and an accuser, but he's a defeated one. There's no doubt that he tempts us. And then he's an incredible deceiver. And then he accuses us when we struggle and when we sin. There's no doubt, but he's a defeated one. So it's up to us to begin to partner with what God has for us so that the defeated enemy doesn't defeat us. Look in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. It says this, Do not give the devil a foothold. Now in the Greek, this is a military term. Okay? And if some of you served in the service, you might even have used this term. That if you're going to take down your enemy, you need to get a foothold of occupancy. So you break into a new territory, and if you can get a foothold, how many of you know it's easier to defeat your enemy if you're within them and not outside of them? Okay? A foothold can become a stronghold. If you can get a foothold in a, a, a particular location, you can develop that, you can fortify it, and it can become a stronghold. Now, what's interesting is this is actually being referred to in the sense of our spiritual walk. He was writing to people that love God already, and he's telling people that love God, don't give the devil a foothold, which leads to the obvious question. Why would he tell us not to give the devil a foothold if we couldn't give the devil a foothold? I was brought up in a church. My pastor would say every once in a while, listen, church, God and Satan can't be in the same place. And everybody would go, amen. And they would amen something that's not biblical at all. How many know that God is omnipresent? He is always everywhere. If he is always everywhere, then Satan is always in his presence because Satan can't go to a place where God's not. God's always everywhere. We even see sometimes in the scriptures, a couple of different times, where there's a view of heaven and you see heaven and God's on his throne in heaven and it says that Satan is there accusing God's people before the Lord. Now, how crazy is that? So that tells me Satan and God can be in the same place at the same time. With that said, is it possible that my life is full of the presence of God, but perhaps I've given a foothold to the enemy? Oh, not only is it possible, if you'd ask your spouse, they'd probably be honest with you about it, right? As a matter of fact, right before this, it says, in your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. In other words, if you don't deal with sin immediately, it can open an access point that the enemy can get a foothold in your life. Did you know that God's word encourages us and it says that we're to put off falsehood and to put on truth and we're not to let a root of bitterness spring up? Have you ever met a Christian that's bitter? They love God, but they look like they've been baptized in vinegar and they've lost their best friend, okay? And they're like, follow me as I follow the Lord. And you're like, I don't want to be that miserable, okay? Bitterness can set into our life. Has anybody here been hurt before? About half of us? Wow, the rest of us teach us your secret. 
We've been hurt. We've been wounded. We've been taken advantage of. We've been manipulated. We've been lied to. We've been cheated. I'm not getting any amens today, but it's true. When Beth and I, we, we founded Faith Chapel, it started with two people. It started with Beth and I. Feeling like the Lord was calling us to launch a new church in the community, and it, it quickly grew to six people. I mean, that's some rapid growth when you say, I mean, talk about percentages, right? It stayed at six for quite a while, but it quickly grew from two to six. I would have never thought that I would be hurt in a church that God used me to pastor and to plant. I haven't been hurt here in a long time, but I was hurt here. I would have thought, Lord, really? You call us to plant a church, and then some of the very people that attend the church you call us to plant hurt me? I don't even understand that. He's like, yeah, don't even look at my word where I brought my disciples to me and they all forsook me on the day before I was executed and one of them actually betrayed me to sinners. Okay, I get it now. He suffered, we suffer. Has anybody been betrayed? Has anybody been hurt? Okay. You recognize those are an incredible opportunity for your defeated enemy to get a foothold in your life if you're not quick to offer forgiveness. And I am here to tell you right now, there are some people that I have forgiven that I forgive every time their name comes into my mind. I'm like, oh, I've already forgiven, and I continue to forgive. I, I operate with a spirit of forgiveness toward that. If more of us would operate with a spirit of forgiveness, we wouldn't be so easily offended. We definitely wouldn't allow a root of bitterness to grow in our life that keeps us from God's best, okay? But part of the way that we do this is we need to start changing our thinking. Now, here's the thing about it. If giving a foothold to the devil were impossible, we would not be instructed to prevent it from happening. We've already established that. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. I'm not going to take the time to do background for every verse. You guys can look these things up. But I love this line Paul has. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive what? Every thought, and we make it obedient to Christ. Every thought. Pastor Beth talks about this a lot. Talks about it in our house. Talks about it in our ladies' Bible study. When she does conferences, she talks about it. Taking captive every thought. I'm going to go at it from a different angle just for fun. Uh, I'm going to give you the Greek word for thought. If you like to jot this kind of stuff down or type it into your notes, go for it. If you don't, just run with us for a while, okay? The Greek word for thought is noma. If you were transliterating it, writing it in English, N-O-E-M-A. Noma, okay? So we are told that we're to take captive, ooh, thank you, every noma, every thought, and make it obedient to Christ. Um, what does that mean? It's a nice thing to say, but what does it mean? How many of you have ever been driving up Highway K or on the interstate, and somebody pulled out in front of you, so, you didn't hit them, but it was so close that you were like, oh, thank God, that was almost an accident. Have, have you ever had on the interstate or road, somebody's pulled out in front of you? In that moment when somebody's pulled out in front of you, especially if your kids were in the car, how many of you ever had a bad thought? Okay, yeah, all right, I have. Okay, somebody, you're like, are you kidding? I was actually following Beth home last week on the outer road. She takes the outer road home most of the time. I don't know why. It's slower. But she's taking the outer road home. And as she's driving, I'm behind her in my car. She's got the kids in her car. And they're driving home. And somebody from, uh, what is it, Jim Tenary Chevrolet pulls out literally right in front of her. She had to swerve a bit to the right. They waited until she got there. 
And like, I saw this whole thing. The guy's sitting there. He had plenty of time, waited until she got there. Then he pulled out in front of her. I, I want you to know it wasn't righteous indignation that, that rose up with it. I thought, who would pull out in front of my wife like that? Anybody know what I'm talking about? You know what I wanted to do? Swerve my car into his. We're on Facebook. God bless you guys. Mercy, <laughs> grace from my belly's river of living water. We just partner with his presence. I, I, it, I mean, I'm telling you, I had to take captive my thought. Now think about this. What is driving headfirst into a car going to teach me about anything? Hey, well, I wanted to kill him so bad, I tried to kill myself. Has anybody ever been mad on the road and you almost swerved at him? There's a few of you. I'm seeing some pinkies. You're like, should I even admit this? And some head nods. Of, we've, hey, we've got to celebrate recovery group on Mondays. If this is a hang-up, we can help you with this, okay? We can help you with this. I, I don't know what it is, man. It, it, some, we all have it rise up. We have to take captive every thought. Do you realize that ultimately the thoughts, they're not just to destroy others. Ultimately, they're to destroy ourselves. Be, because the, we, the enemy wants us to partner with his thoughts, and he's here to steal. Come on. That's his, his goal. Now, with this said, taking captive every thought, making it obedient to Christ. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Paul says, anyone you forgive, I also forgive, and what I've forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of, your, of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his what? Schemes. Now, this is incredible. There's great history in this verse. It's, it's, it's interesting enough. I'm going to go ahead and share it with you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's writing the church because there was a guy that was like a part of their worship and a part of their community, and he claimed to be a follower of Christ, but guess what? He was having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. I mean, seriously, I don't even know if Jerry Springer would cover that, all right? Is that guy still around? Is he still living? Okay, so um, I don't even know if he would, but that's what was happening. And Paul wrote the church, and he's like, you're followers of Christ, and this is happening in the church, and you're not dealing with it? He goes, you need to evict that guy. Before you go, yeah, Christians are so mean. He's like, you need to evict him. Let the enemy have his way with him for a while so that he'll look up and go, oh God, I need help. And come back and say, forgive me, help me. How many know that God doesn't punish, but he disciplines? He disciplines. There's a difference. He disciplines those that he loves. And so it worked. Paul gave them this counsel. They said, hey, man, you got to go. We, you claim to be a follower of Christ. You're sleeping with your stepmother. This is disgusting, and we can't allow this to take place in, in, in our worship community. you got to step out of here. Now, the problem is if we try to deal with sin in the world today, there's only 57,000 other churches within a five-mile radius, and so we don't deal with sin. We just go hide someplace else. But he didn't have any place else to go in Corinth unless it was to you know, the goddess Athena's place. So he finally comes back and he's like, I've sinned, I'm sorry, help me, take me back. And the church looks at him and they go, we're not taking you back, you pervert. We always miss it, don't we? We let them stay and we don't deal with it. And then when they want to repent, we call them perverted. I mean, you know, God doesn't see us as perverts, but he sees us as forgiven sons and daughters. And the guy comes back, he's like, will you take me back? And and they weren't. And Paul said, listen, forgive. I forgive. We forgive in the sight of Christ. And then he goes, if there was even anything to forgive. And I'm looking at that story going, there really was something to forgive. 
But he's trying to let us know that the weight of the sin is never greater than the weight of the grace of God. I mean, do you believe that God covers all sin or not? Can murderers be forgiven? Can people that cheat off their neighbor's homework be forgiven? I, I hope so. I hope sins are forgiven. I believe they are. He said, we don't want Satan to outwit us. In other words, we follow the leading of the Lord. He's come back. Let's bring him into the family now. And he says, we're not unaware of his schemes, the enemy's schemes. Look at this verse. The word noma is in there. What did I, what did I say noma was? It was the word for thought, right? And yet, I don't see the word thought here. As a matter of fact, the translators, every time they use the word noma in the New Testament, it's translated as thought, except for here. For some reason, they used a different word. Anybody want to take a guess at what word is noma in this passage? I'll read it to you with thought instead. We are not unaware of his thoughts. We need to start recognizing that the schemes of the enemy are the very thoughts that he puts into our minds that take us away from what God's purpose, God's will, and God's plan is for our lives. Here's your think about it. The agenda of the enemy rides the waves of the thoughts he gives us that we do not capture. I have come to believe that it really comes down to this. We are either having a heavenly mindset or an earthly mindset. There's just no middle ground. And God's word says in the book of James that that earthly mindset, it's earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. You could even say devilish. Let me ask you, children of God, have you ever had some devilish thoughts? You love God, you honor God, and yet sometimes your thought life, you're like, man, where are these things coming from? We need to take them captive and make them obedient to Christ because they're to steer us away from God's best. They're to hinder us from fulfilling our destiny and our children from fulfilling their destiny and to hinder us within this, this community that God's given us. We need to take captive. Let me illustrate it this way. Are you familiar with Matthew chapter 16? You're like, yeah, Pastor Brett, it's right after 15. Okay. Um, but remember when Jesus and his disciples, they're walking to Caesarea Philippi. And on their way to Caesarea Philippi, and they're just strolling together, and Jesus says to his disciples, hey, who do people say that I am? Just having conversation. They're like, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Some say you're Elijah, or maybe one of the other prophets. So obviously, the report was, people on the earth don't really know who you are, but they know you're something special. And then Jesus says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Remember what the apostle Peter says? You're the Christ. Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, you're, you're the anointed one, you're the Messiah. Now, wouldn't it be cool to get that answer right? Okay, have you ever taken your kids home from Sunday school and you're like, what did you learn about today? And they said what? Jesus. You're like, oh, I'm so glad, so glad. You got it right, let's go to bandanas. Smell that smoke, right? So we, we know how this works. So Peter had to be feeling good. The Lord says, you're right, Peter. Peter's like, yes, I am. And he goes, and you didn't figure that out on your own. Translation, you're not smart enough to put that together. I've been hanging out with you for three years. The Father revealed that to you. You only can understand that kind of a revelation because God helped you understand it. That was a heavenly mindset. You know what takes place a paragraph later? 
Now that they've understood, or at least their eyes have been opened a little bit to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah of God. He is the king. He's the one that was coming for his children. Jesus takes it to the next level to give them a little more teaching. And Jesus says, by the way, I'm going to be murdered for you. I'm going to be crucified. Who speaks up? Simon Peter, because he always speaks up. This time, not so much led by the Father. Surely not, Lord. You shall never die. And Jesus looks at him, and what does he say? Do you remember? Get behind me, Satan. Wow. From the guy that had the answer right to the guy that... Wouldn't it be amazing if the person that always sets the curve in class became the biggest moron in biology, right? You are the Messiah. Oh, my father gave you that. You shall not die, Satan. What is Jesus illustrating here? He is saying, Peter, you're either partnering with the mentality that my father is giving from heaven, or you're partnering with the mentality that's coming from the bellows of hell. It's either or. There's no middle ground. Church, we're the ones that have to walk with the mindset of heaven, which leads us to our ninth point in this series And I'm going to ask you just to kind of ride this journey with me for a minute because it's a topic that for whatever reason has become difficult to talk about in church. Not sure why, but you know me. I'm willing to go there. Here it is, the ninth point. Not everything that happens to you is God's will. Sovereignty does not mean God is controlling. Pastor Brad, are you saying that God isn't sovereign? Not at all. Let's not read this for more than what we're saying. When we talk about sovereign, we're talking about is God seated on a throne, high and exalted? Is he God over the universe? Uh, For crying out loud, is he God over the universes? The ones that we haven't even discovered yet. The galaxy that's ever expanding. Is he the magistrate on high, sovereign, always was, always is? Yes, absolutely, emphatically, amen and amen. Does he also direct people to make every decision and choice that they make? No. Let me, I'll share my premise with you, and then we'll go into the verses. Here's the premise. God is sovereign in the sense that he is the ruling king of kings and the ultimate majesty of the universe, but that does not mean he is in control or that, maybe another way to say it, he controls everything that goes on in earth. He doesn't control everything that goes on. How many of you are sovereign over your own home? Is it your house? You paying the bill? Is it your place? Okay. And we can even argue in that sense, Pastor Brett, I'm not really sovereign over my own home. I'm still paying a mortgage. And those of you that said, praise God, I got mine paid off. How many of you still get hit with taxes on a monthly basis? Okay. So we could still argue sovereignty if we really wanted to, but let's just pretend we're sovereign over our own home and it's not owned by the government, which is a crazy thing to pretend, but we'll pretend that anyway. All right. Let's pretend that. You're sovereign over your own home. How many not even everything in your house happens the way you want it to? How many can't even control your children's choices? And let's be honest, how many would love to control your children's choices? Ooh, come on, let's be real. And if you can't control your children's choices, how many know you definitely can't control your neighbor's children's choices? Okay? You walking with me on this? Look in Psalm 24, verse 1. Just walk this out with me for a minute. I'm not saying God isn't sovereign. I'm not saying God isn't the I am. 
omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, eternal. I'll use all the big words because he's all those words and more. I'm just saying he doesn't, he doesn't control every decision that people make. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Yes, all of it belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. There's no doubt about it. But look at Psalm 115 verse 16. I would have loved it if somebody would have shared this with me when I was younger in the, in the faith. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. Let's read it together. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. Some translations actually say he's given to the hands of the sons of men. So it's like it only belongs to our hands. No, hands represent in scripture work. He's given it to us to work it. I would say this, if you see the problems in the world, it's not God's fault. We're his body We've been given the hands, and it's up to us to work it and to bring heaven to earth. God's already got heaven in heaven, and it's perfectly fine. And the heavens belong to the Lord, and one of these days we're going to share in the heavens. But until that day, the earth belongs to me, and the earth belongs to you, and it's up to us to exercise the authority about it to make a difference. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go here with a story. It happened a few months ago that I was involved in. It's a bit personal, so I won't share any names. I'm just I'm going to walk you through the story. Received a phone call. There was a, a young lady that had been arrested. She'd been arrested for some drug possession. Her mom had went and bailed her out of prison. Okay, she'd been bailed out of prison. Not, not prison, out of jail, county jail. And on the way back, they pick up more stuff for her to continue to satisfy herself with. So you can talk about parental choices in this moment. You've got a child that's addicted. You're bailing her out of prison, and now you're purchasing more stuff for her. And the child's driving. I'm using the word child. I'm not saying she's 16. Just it was her daughter. As she's driving and she's in no condition to drive, she flips her car on the interstate, and she kills her mom instantly. And she almost killed herself. She was going in for immediate, sur uh, immediate emergency surgery. I was asked to go to the hospital. Now, I'm a human being, and I'm sure you don't have an issue with that, but it's not like I've got a pastor book with all the right phrases in every sucky moment of life. I'm sorry, in every struggle that people face. I would never say that, okay? So, does anybody else that loves Jesus not have an answer for every struggle of life? And if you think you do, please shuddy, because you don't. Somebody dies and you tell us immediately your story of your first tragedy when somebody died. All you're saying is, I'm not even listening to your pain right now. We've got to learn sometimes just to keep it quiet. My mom used to say, if you don't know what to say, don't. Okay, just don't. So I'm driving over there. I'm like, God, I don't know what to say. I don't know what, I'm, I'm just, I'm hoping to bring your presence in. I'm hoping to bring your kindness. I don't know what to say. So I went in and I just said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just sat close to him. I'm here for you. I'm sorry. And just sat there. Let them know I was available if they needed anything. And then I watched one of the family members that got there late walk over, put a hug around one of the sisters, tears flowing down both of their faces. Don't, God's in control. God's got a plan. And I wanted to run through the concrete wall. If we use the phrase, God is in control, 
as a comfort to someone who was just killed, their child was just killed on the interstate because they were on heroin. We don't understand what the sovereignty of God means. I'm just going to go ahead and back up a little bit and say it wasn't God's will for her to be on drugs. It wasn't God's will for her to put herself in a situation where she could harm herself driving a car while on drugs. It wasn't God's will for her to be in prison. It wasn't God's will for her to be broken, for her to be abused, for her to be wounded, for her to be addicted. That's the will of the enemy. The will comes of the enemy is to still kill and destroy. He celebrates addiction. He celebrates brokenness. And I'll guarantee you the demons of hell were rejoicing that this lady was killed in this moment. But God wasn't rejoicing. It's not God's plan that we would be the, the end of our own demise. God's plan is that we would be liberated. We would be set free. We would be celebrated by the king of kings that made us, that loved us, that created us in his own image. We've got to quit saying God's in control when tragedy happens. The earth's been given in the hands of the sons of men. I'll, I'll go as far as to say not everything is God's will, but you can bring God's will into everything. Because, yeah, thank you. Because you carry the kingdom, and you carry the anointing. Let me just throw these things at you, okay? If God is controlling everything, in other words, if everything's God's will, number one, why were there two trees in the garden? Pastor Brad, I thought there were a lot of trees in the garden. Well, there were. But in particular, remember, he made... And he placed in the garden a tree of life and a tree of a knowledge of good and evil. How many wish they would have chosen the tree of life? Have you ever wondered if they would have chosen to eat from the tree of life, would the earth instantly have been heaven on earth and we'd all be living in it right now? I mean, you just can't help but wonder, but dadgummit, they didn't choose the tree of life. I don't know why they were that way. I, would, I mean, you know me, I would have been perfectly obedient in that situation, just like you right? Just like I always choose salad over ribs. Any, right? Okay. I, I, they, they chose the wrong tree. They yielded to temptation. It could have been a different way, but thankfully Jesus came as the second Adam. He is the tree of life, and we can choose him now. And because we can choose them now, we can receive the same mandate that they had at the beginning. Now go throughout the earth, be fruitful and multiply and make the earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. Come on, bring it, somebody. Go out. Jesus gives you the opportunity to bring it and carry it to others. Number two, if every storm is from God, why did Jesus calm the storm? Okay? People say, well, God sent the hurricane. God sent the tornado. God sent this. If God sends every storm, when Jesus told the storm to be still, he would have been in disobedience to his own father. Doesn't make sense. God's a God of peace and order. Number three, if every sickness is from God, why did Jesus give us the authority and the command to heal the sick? I'm thankful that it's a promise. Aren't you thankful that it's a promise that sick people can be healed? But also, he said, do it. It's actually a command of his. Number four, if every death is from God, why did Jesus give us the ability to raise the dead? Okay? Number five, last one. If everything that happens is God's will, why did God equip us to change the things that are happening? I, I really do believe there's great hope in our county because you're here. 
you carry something special. I've been praying for pastors in our area lately. I prayed for them this morning with the early service, our dress rehearsal group. They had a rough one this morning. Um, we, I had some mic issues. I was making mistakes up here, but we got it. Everything worked out for the second group, so at least at least a little better. But um, I, I told them this morning, I've really been praying for pastors lately because there's such a performance mentality among pastors. We've received something placed on us that we should never receive, that we've got we've to create a dynamic atmosphere for the congregation because we don't tend to see them as a congregation anymore. We see them as an audience. And, and we're trying to, we got to keep you here. We got to pay the bills for crying out loud. I, I read a story recently about the church that lost its ability to worship because their smoke machine quit functioning at the right time. Of course, it was just satire. It was just a joke. Now, I'm not against smoke machines. I don't want them blowing in my face. I'm not against them. I'm not against colors and, you know, be honest, with you, I don't even really like our circles. I mean, we try different things from time to time. How many of you, when you came in, you're like, oh, that's different? Okay, All right. Shirley, thank you for the honesty. God bless you. We always knew we could kind of see it. We could sense it when we walked by you. Pastor Josh led the team that got it done, and Pastor Josh got done with it, and he goes, not my favorite. Okay. I mean, we try to do some different decorating every once in a while. Everything changes so quick in our culture anymore. I mean, if you don't, people get bored, okay? I mean, you're not bored. I've only been preaching for 40 minutes, but you, you understand. I mean, it's, we, but if it's, about, if it's about the design, if it's about the smoke, if it's about the lasers, if it's about the moving screen, aren't you thankful the early church didn't have to have that to get the gospel out? I mean, Paul preached so long one time. You're going to love this. He preached so long that a dude fell asleep, and that happens all the time. I, I could call out about six of you right now, to be honest with you. But he, he preached so long that the guy that fell asleep was sitting in the window seal. He fell out the back. Have you read the story? He was on the second floor. It killed him instantly when he landed. Now, can you imagine? Come to our youth group. We win fine arts and, and we lose a child every year out the window. I mean, what, you know what? I, how do you even deal with that? Paul doesn't miss a beat. Y'all remember the story? He goes down there. He speaks life, brings the guy back to life. You would think that that would be enough, wouldn't you? Hey, they got the, hey, praise God. Man, this is, he's imparted every day. Let's head home. No, Paul goes, hey, I've got like three more points. Come on back upstairs. You ever wonder, why do these preachers never stop? He, guy dies, he's resurrected, still preaching. There goes the Energizer Bunny, of, right? It just keeps going and going and going. What is it? They, they didn't have everything that we have, and I'm not knocking what we have. Please follow my heart. But if they needed smoke machines and lasers to get people to stay focused on the gospel, they were going to be in trouble. They didn't need it because they laid hands on the sick and they recovered. Because they said, you might be broken and defeated, but what Jesus came to give you liberates you and you will walk in victory. Heaven and earth was moved so that heaven and earth can move in you. All right? I'm going to skip a lot of really good stuff, but let's go to the thought right before the final point, John. The thought is this. Love is only love when it is free not to love. It's only love when it's free not to love. If, if, if I tried to make you love me, 
If I could control you loving me, that's not love at all. It's not love at all. That's why when you, when you have a relationship and somebody loves you back because they chose to, and then they love you back even when they see you at your worst, on your bad days. Man of faith and power, man defeated. How about Elijah? Facing the prophets of Baal, calls down fire from heaven. The next day, he's depressed and hiding in a cave. You're like, really? You can go from that to the... Anybody else? Have you ever went from there to there? Isn't it good when somebody still loves you when you're there? As much as they do when you're here? Okay? All right, somebody... I, the freedom to love... It, if we don't have freedom to love, we don't understand why there were two trees in the garden. We don't understand, and I, I, I don't have time to preach it, but I'll just remind you. Remember when Jesus stood in front of the crowd, and he said, hey, if you love me, if you really want to follow me, remember what he says, and it wasn't in John chapter 6? Yeah, John chapter 6. He said, if you really want to follow me, you ready for this? Eat my flesh. Drink my blood. And there were some people who went, dude's crazy. He's sick. I'm, and he wasn't saying, you know, come finger foods. That's not where he was going, okay? Well, sorry. It's actually kind of funny, but <clears throat> I've been in those moments where you just give your best to people and they never mind. But it, it, that's not, he wasn't saying that. He, he was saying, hey, it's relation. It's relationship. I, you're here. I'm, I fed you when you're hungry. I've casted the demons out of your kids. You're, you're caught up in it, but don't be caught up in it. Let me come in. Let it be about this. And remember, it said most of the crowd walked away. What did Jesus do? First of all, he made a bracelet for himself, WWJD, so he would know how to handle the moment. He made the bracelet. And then he thought, I've had like 16 espressos. Can you tell? It's starting to get, it's starting to get the best of me. And... Uh, I, too, was up pretty late Friday, even though it wasn't, it, it, but anyway, long story. So he, he, what does Jesus do? He looks at his disciples, and he said to them, you ready? Are you going to leave, too? If he's a controlling God, he doesn't ask a question like that. And Jesus came to represent the Father. He said, are you, you going to go, too? And Peter spoke up. <laughs> Surprise! And what did he say? Lord, where will we go? I, I, how could we go anywhere? We, we want you. I, you know, I love Faith Chapel. I mean, can I be honest with you? I, not because we started it. It's because of you guys. I filmed these guys yesterday doing everything they did, and people came over. You've been crying all day. <laughs> I just wanted to slap them. Just wanted to <laughs> slap them. Dodie, I held it back because you were one of the people that said it. I, God bless you, but... When she's short enough, I'm just going to pound her down into the ground a little bit. Why was I doing Yeah, I know, John, it's your mom. But, but, <laughs> why? I, you, do you know how many of these students that I've stood up here and helped you dedicate? That I've stood in the water with them when they were baptized? And I'm like, God, you're releasing something real and something fresh because they're learning to release the kingdom of heaven on earth. It takes time. We've got pastors that leave churches every five years because they're frustrated. It takes time to build something that'll go from generation to generation. Okay? I was crying because I'm, I'm, I'm a spiritual dad. 
I couldn't take it. We've got to recognize a drunk driver killing a child in an accident is never God's will. Never. Pastor Brett, how can you say that? Because God's word says don't be drunk with wine. So how can we say that his word says not to be drunk with wine, but then it's, so, it's his will for somebody to be drunk with wine, drive the car, kill the child? It's either his will or it isn't. It isn't. But Pastor Brad, there's so many questions. It's so messy. There's so much heartbreak. Yeah. And that's where we get to point 10. How many of you will give me five minutes for one point? Because I, I, thank you. There was one person that raised, and then, and then we have people leave, right, when I ask. I asked for five minutes, and bye, Pam. Golly. Just join me. Extend your hand to Larry for a second. I, God, we knew, and we never knew. We never knew what Larry had to deal with. Larry, don't ask her for anything, bud. I'm, I'm learning. Welcome back, Pam. Come on. See, that's what happens when you begin to speak life. Things begin to turn around. No, okay, all right. <laughs> all right, point in. This is family. This is what it's about. First time guests are going, don't you ever call me out. Don't you ever call me out. We won't, okay? All right, we won't yet. Number 10, here it is. God's kingdom on earth is, and it's hot in here today, by the way, but anyway. Uh, God's kingdom on earth is his assignment to each of us. And I put this in strategically, all right, strategery, as President Bush, Bush used to say, uh, strategery, because we have to understand that not everything that happens is what God wanted, which coincidentally is why you've been given what you've been given to change it. And I'll share the verse with you, Matthew 4, 17. Um, I'll try to keep it short. From that time on, Jesus had been tempted in the wilderness, filled with the Spirit. He came back out of that moment. From that moment on, he began to pro and preach. We're not talking platform. We're talking proclaiming, okay? He began to say. He began to communicate. He began to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, the word for repent here, it's not what we typically think of in the church world where run to the altar, fall on your knees, and tell God how horrible of a person you are. That's not what repentance is. You, you know what it is? It's like, hey, change your thinking. Change your thinking. You're looking for the kingdom of heaven. You're looking for heaven somewhere. Change your mindset. The kingdom of heaven is here. Now you're like, wow, that's a big statement. But we need to understand what kingdom means. It's the same word, Matthew 6, 10. You've prayed the prayer before, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How many of you have heard that before? The Lord's Prayer, you've heard that, okay? That Greek, that Greek word for kingdom, who knows it? What is it? Basileia. It's a part of our culture. Okay? That's why we're, we're revisiting our tribal speak. Basileia. Basileia does not mean castle. Basileia does not mean the wealth of the treasury. Basileia means the authority of the scepter. Okay? A king 
would exercise his authority, he would lift up that scepter, and he would either pardon or he wouldn't pardon. We are told that we've been given this authority of heaven, and Jesus is saying, hey, hey, change your mindset. Here's the authority of heaven right here with me. Now, this Greek, this Greek word, basilia, it's used 54 times in the book of Matthew alone. 54 times. 33 of them referring to the kingdom of heaven. And most of them referring to Jesus doing it and Jesus giving it to his disciples to do it. So let's go to the last verse and we'll wrap it up. It is this, Matthew 10, 7 and 8. As you go, all right, so we can kind of even use that with you guys today. Okay, you're like, we get to go. As you go, proclaim this message. The basilia, the authority, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now remember, Jesus sent his disciples out and he still told them to say this. And you're thinking, but Jesus wasn't with them when he sent them out. Of course, he was with them in spirit, but he physically wasn't with them. Exactly. Because not only did Jesus carry the authority of the kingdom, but he gave it to them so they could carry the authority of the kingdom. So carry it out. Hey, the kingdom of heaven is near. And here's some ways that you demonstrate it. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leprous, drive out demons. Freely you've received, freely give. Let's say that God uses me to reach out to Larry. Broken heart, his wife can't make it through a service. Okay? All right, God wants to use me to reach out to Larry. And I bring the kingdom of heaven to Larry. If I do that, freely I've received, freely I've given. I can only give him what God gave me to give him. How many of you little children, you've given them money to buy a gift for a grandparent or the, your spouse? They couldn't do it without you, right? And if you're one of those stingy people and your spouse is opening up the gift that your child gave and you're thinking, well, they didn't pay for it, I paid for it. You're, then we're missing the point. They couldn't do anything without you. And you've created them for crying out loud. And we can't do anything without him either. And yet... He's given it to us to give away. And because I give it away, Larry is blessed and healed. But it's more than just Larry receiving. When I give it, Larry gets it to give. And now he can minister to the next person the next time that Carrie leaves Kyle right in the middle of a service, just like Pam did to him. He can, he can give it to Kyle. And then Kyle can bless it to the next person, okay? A little facetiousness. With just the, but think about that. Jesus gave the kingdom of heaven to you to give away to others, and everybody that you give the kingdom to has the kingdom that they can give away. That's it. That's all I got.